there is so much out there to get mad about. Social injustices, class warfare, continued colonization, the act of destruction of our planet by those focused on profits and not people. We can find it overwhelming at times. The good news is there are equally as many, if not more, stories of people coming together and rising up against the forces at play. So the creators of Blueprints of Disruption have added a new weekly segment, Ravel Rants, where we will unpack the stories that have us most riled up, share calls to action, and most importantly, celebrate resistance. Today we're ranting about cops. I mean, that's the simplest way to put it. I've got it. It feels like too many stories here sitting in front of me that are just from the last week or two across Canada. Examples of police forces, municipal police forces for the most part, absolutely just cracking down on protests, aiding in encampment evictions, arresting journalists, just really pissing us off. And it's tied in with so many of the other things that we have been talking about, whether it's the you know demonization of the pro-Palestinian movement or disruption in general, the overfunding of police forces, and the general rise of fascism here in Canada. And yeah, we're going to run through some of the examples to keep you guys up to date, but it just opens up a whole bunch of discussion points that really has my blood boiling this week. Let's get into it. Edmonton. I mean, this is what really kind of sparked the need for Santiago and I to talk about this because we're we're talking about encampment evictions quite a bit on the show and the use of security forces or police. But here in Edmonton, I mean, they were ruthless. They announced that they were going to clear eight different encampments, over 100 people. And, you know, they tried to fight it through the courts. In the end, the cops moved in and minus 20 weather. Minus 30 now. Minus 40 at nighttime, two days after they were, had finished the very last encampment. With wind chill feels like minus 50 now, even. Just to make you more mad, while this was happening, their mayor was on vacation in Hawaii. That opens another kind of discussion point where politicians just play games with people's lives. So he's he's in Hawaii, his police forces evicting people, they're arresting journalists on site. We'll get into that in a second. And they're going to have a council meeting to declare homelessness an emergency in response as though like they didn't play part and parcel of this decampment just going to bat back and forth with the province like it's somebody else's problem and so i mean apparently edmonton says they have the facilities they're not quite at full capacity only 94 percent shelter capacity so they say they can take everyone but we've talked many times on the show before that shelters aren't for everybody they're not designed for everybody so the reality is folks are going to be out. But the point is the cops, really, they arrested Brandy Morton. For folks who don't know, you know, maybe get to know Brandy Morton. She is an Edward Murrow Award winner. You might have read her covering the Fairy Creek blockade. And even though she has done a multitude of pieces on protests and, and different situations like that, land defending, This is the first time in 13 years that she had ever been arrested. And 
from the accounts that I'm reading online where she has her firsthand accounts. I mean, she was shook. This was not something, even though she had witnessed, I'm sure, bullying and horrible police tactics. As a journalist, she had never been treated that way. Reading her account and a few other people, I I think that really points to the lack of respect journalists are getting from police or the distinction that they have, or in general, just the ability for people to challenge the status quo. You know, and police are now, your tax dollars, your city budgets are going to into funding this. And and I think that was a quite an alarming moment. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing, I mean, the, the fact that there's even encampment evictions happening in this kind of weather conditions is already alarming. But the crackdown on media trying to cover it is just, a, it, it's exactly what we were talking about in the recent episode on fascism, right? Showing that police are getting more and more comfortable with more and more authoritarian tactics. This was someone who was there simply to cover, not participating. Like they, And they were not just moved out of the scene. They were taken in. They had their fingerprints taken. You know, they were properly arrested. As you mentioned, they're not new to this. Like, they've been around the block a few times. The Ferry Creek, we know what a disaster everything around Ferry Creek was. This is unprecedented. And we're seeing it happen more and more. It's a trend. It's no longer enough protection to be a journalist. And we know, I mean, I can't go an episode without mentioning it. Uh, um, of course, was happening in in Gaza. Canada's complicitness there with regards to the murder of journalists and now the treatment of journalists back at home. It's not a disconnected thing. It's part of the same system. It's the same culture, the same philosophy. Just in different forms here than there. It's not just the Edmonton police. We know the Toronto police have done this as well. And just as I'm preparing my notes to do this episode, we see in Vancouver at Oppenheimer Park, activists were arrested by Vancouver police when they were trying to protect the property of those being evicted. They call it a decampment. So we have another term to describe what we're seeing. And it's kind of scary that there's hate that lingo all built around the expulsion of people from tents in the winter. So it's not just journalists being arrested. It's also people that are trying to be good Samaritans, essentially. So Brandy, although she was offered the ability to move from the area. At the time, the police had hands-on with a community member, an Indigenous community member of the encampment, and she felt like it was her duty to witness that as a journalist and to not be put away, put aside. We're giving a lot of power to police to decide when, how, and where we can protest. This episode is going to be full of those examples. But I want to go back to something you said there, Santiago. You talked about the police getting more bold. And I think we have a responsibility there. So it's one thing to have a defund the police movement. But also earlier this week, you know, there's a video that went semi-viral of uh, I didn't know what term to use when I wrote this because I didn't want to insult you and your view of journalism, but also uh, rebel news is what we're talking about. So a rebel news reporter walked up to Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland, one of my favorite politicians to hate, and he ended up getting shouldered by this cop. You know, presumably he's part of her security detail. 
And even if you didn't know who he was, he had a microphone. He was clearly asking a question. I could kind of see his creds around his neck. There's no way her security detail hadn't encountered him before. They knew exactly who he was and they didn't care. And they didn't even care they were on camera. Like he almost looks square in the camera and says, I'm charging you with assault when, you know, he plants himself in the way of that reporter. So unless you put on the brakes real fast, you're you're going to end up bumping into him. And then with a straight face tells him he's charging him with assault for that. So it wasn't just, you know, ignoring police. It was a really dirty tactic of you know, suckering him into an assault charge. We shouldn't be surprised, right? Like anybody listening, we just talked about how Brandy was arrested. And I mean, we've told many, many stories of police brutality are out there. But what really pissed me off around this, other than I was already pissed off about the video, was the response to, from leftists, from people with defund the police in their friggin' bios. I took so much heat for kind of condemning the police for doing that. I thought this is why police are, are bold. Not just why, there's a million reasons why, but surely we contribute it when we condone it when it happens to our political opponents. Yeah, that really bothered me personally, the response. And this is a situation where it this, this does affect me as an individual personally, because tolerating the actions of the police in this situation, it opens a door for the same thing to happen to me I, when I'm out in the field doing my work. Because as much as we view him, rightfully so, as a propagandist and question his legitimacy in terms of uh, in terms of the, the their journalistic output, which has no credibility in terms of a, a, any sort of fact-based reporting, any sort of anything at all like it's rebel news you know we know what rebel news is it doesn't change the fact that when they're out in the field with a microphone and a camera they're journalists there's no accreditation system in in these situations anybody who goes with a microphone and a camera and is looking to report on a situation is a journalist what he is is a very very bad journalist a propagandist but a journalist nonetheless. And that is that that that's an important distinction to make. Because they're gonna say the same things about people like me, you know? And so it puts me in the and we were just talking about uh I mean, the episode with Dimitri, you know, we were just talking about uh, going and, and, and asking Christia Freeland questions. It, it could have like it literally could have been me in that situation. And it's not right. No matter what, no matter how piss poor of a journalist they are, it, it, it's not right to arrest people for this. It's not. We can criticize them in whatever way we want, but the use of police here is authoritarianism, which we stand against. Now, I know, for example, that he was funneling Christia Freeland in the direction of a corner, of course. And there are... <laughs> arguments to be made about concerns but he didn't touch Garcia Freeland they didn't ask him to move they immediately went to arrest him and charge him with assault what happened was completely unacceptable and the response from from fellow leftists it's the same thing that happened during you know the the, the freedom convoy so-called or whenever you know the right ends up running with police which is Far less often, but it does happen. And we see people cheer them on because they're not on our side. And what happens is 
it's I mean, just like with the Freedom Convoy, we're seeing what's happening now at Avenue Road where protests are perfectly acceptable protests are being criminalized. That is the result. There's no exceptions to be made here. When we say all cops are bastards, it's all cops are bastards. Fuck the police every single time. Why do people forget that consistently? Consistently, like something goes wrong and they they want a police response in their favor. I think this is mostly white folks that do that. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that because they just are so used to using police to solve their problems. Inherently, they know systemically, they know that it's an issue, but on a one-on-one basis, if it's helping them out, they're okay with it. And I'm not okay with that at all. And it's not just about looking hypocritical, which you do. You just hand fodder over to the right wing. You also give them permission to mock our journalists, folks like Brandy or heaven forbid Santiago getting pulled in for the work that he does. You open the door for that. You you normalize these police responses. And just like Santiago said, just like the convoy and the use of the emergency act, simply because it was shutting down something that, you know, was very disruptive to a community. I understand that. But In the end, a lot of the things that we are going to do, like protesting out Melanie Jolie's house, is going to be disruptive to neighborhoods, maybe even neighborhoods that have Jewish people living in them. And we start just kind of opening these doors to say you can protest here, but not here. You can protest like this, but not like that over and over and over again. And, you know, comments like, oh, that's just fash on fash violence is also completely incorrect. Rebel News surely contributes to the downfall of society, okay? Like, there is no defending that trash. Absolutely. But if there is one way to build cross-partisan, working-class solidarity, surely it's with our experiences with police. Poor folks, working-class folks, for the most part, are going to buck up against police as it gets worse. Mm -hmm. We have different ways that we're going to go about it, maybe. We have different solutions, different reasons we'll take to the streets, but you've seen it. And we can't just keep opening the door for arrests, you know, requiring permits, and, you know, in the case that we're going to next, annexing complete neighborhoods and making them zones of exclusion for protests Mm -hmm. that then have, like, added layers of criminality built into them, just arbitrarily decided by police. Yeah, I have to say, like, from uh, pulling from my own personal experience here, that sometimes I've been surprised in the past at people who I wouldn't consider on my side having a, a usefulness in a way you could say um i i remember the the time when i was at i was at city hall uh for john tory's budget you know they kicked out the media so that they could arrest uh people who were there protesting people who uh i'm not gonna say their names but we would know them if i did um there was two people from media who stayed behind there was me and there was a reporter or a cameraman from the toronto sun and the toronto sun is another organization that i would not consider to be of the benefit of society that i would not you know i'm not allied with at all i have heavy criticisms on the sun but their cameraman stayed behind recorded published the videos for so that people could see what was going on and he protected me 
during that time as well. And as well as, you know, one of the, my professor for, for newspaper class, who was a Toronto Sun reporter for decades, I would assume that he would be somebody who would not be on my side, yet he made me editor-in-chief of the paper, and every single edition, the front cover had a protest on it. And we covered more protests than any other paper in the city. So journalism is important. You know, like the whole New York Times democracy dies in the darkness. You know, wh whether or not we consider it good journalism or bad journalism, journalism is important and needs protection. And when we start tr trying to draw these distinctions too aggressively, it puts us in danger. I really believe that. I'm not saying that Rebel News is a good thing. But when somebody calls themselves a, a journalist, I don't care who it is, there is protections that are needed there. And I think it balances out for the better. Because it, if somebody publishes video and does propaganda all over, if this clown goes and, and tries to spread his propaganda asking Garcia Freeland, well, questions well then we can respond to it we can see and we can and comment on what they're saying and it's it's a good thing to know what the right is saying because if if we let these narratives grow without being able to respond to them that's how fascism rises you know we need to be able to know what's going on from every side and be able to argue against it so yeah I, i'm pissed about this every every right to be because let's be fair you know, you might take a little bit of flack for saying, you know, anyone who says they, they're a journalist is a journalist because, you know, that opens up the imagination. But to Santiago's point, who who then decides who who's doing that accreditation? Because because Santiago won't get accreditation. Some of the greatest reporters that ever were probably wouldn't be selected for accreditation because they would be known to be asking hard-hitting questions, mm -hmm. writing with a slant, a, a bias that is damaging to, you know, there's vendettas that go on that would just, like, allow such manipulation of process. And so it's got to stay separate. Before we move on from the story of journalists getting arrested, I want to repeat two points that Desmond Cole made. I felt incredibly validated when I saw him chime in on this because I felt like I felt a little bit out of tune where people were, were not feeling what I was saying. And he set, he set the record straight here, as he usually does. Yes, journalists need access to certain things for certain reasons, but Everyday people also need to be able to ask questions and interact with the people who govern them. Because to his next point, had this same kind of mentality, oh, we got too close, walked her into a corner, you know. We saw footage not that long ago of Prime Minister Trudeau being accosted at a restaurant by people we know. And on that same mentality, we would have had them arrested as well. Right. It's not hypotheticals. There are examples right now of these same tactics being utilized against our side. And we've given space to it. I kind of hinted about a neighborhood being cut off from protests. Or last week, Toronto police decided that Avenue Road in the 401, there's an overpass there, as there are every time you get a highway, I guess. And that area has been 
shut off from protests. Now, you know, we're specifically talking about pro-Palestinian protests because they've allowed protests and banner drops on this overpass many, many times before. It's a very visible spot. Banner drops are a common activity in, in protests. In fact, the first initial event that set the police off was like a province-wide, at least a city-wide banner drop. So there were multiple locations on that day. It was a call to action for the Palestinian youth movement to show solidarity and whatnot. And so there was all kinds organized. And these kind of overpasses, these events are announced ahead of time and counter-protests show up. Some of them end up getting kind of heated. But, you know... <laughs> For me, in order to really explain like how this happened, you have to go back to like the city of Toronto, right October 7th, 8th, Olivia Chow releases a statement, her first statement, you know, has the required condemnation of what happened, the violence, but then immediately goes into police mode, saying she sat down with Toronto police, that she's going to encourage them to start protecting the Jewish community. And we talked about this, but like on its face, it doesn't seem like a bad thing, police protecting a community. But hopefully you've heard enough episodes to understand like how problematic that is. I can't unpack that all here, but you know, it demonized right away Palestinians. It, it assumed that there was some sort of threat here in Canada, presumably from Palestinians to the Jewish community. And this, this narrative has permeated through all of the protests and how they've been portrayed, how they've been portrayed since. And Right away, we saw police accosting people for flying Palestinian flags, and now it's gone next level. Like, they are walking down the street in their own neighborhood with kafiyas, and police arrested them because they have decided that that was a protest, and this is in within the designated area. And they're doing this because they say it's a predominantly Jewish community. Now, you live in the city of Toronto, Santiago. There is no exclusive community hardly anywhere in the city of Toronto. And that's not even the most predominantly known Jewish community in the city. It's th this area in particular. Uh, it can't be claimed by any one group in particular. It, it's incredibly diverse like most areas are. It'd be one thing, you know, we're talking about protests outside of synagogues. There are areas along Bathurst that are definitely areas that I would say are are known to be this this is a jewish community this area on avenue is not and you cannot claim an overpass as part of any community an overpass is an overpass it's very clear why they picked this area because of the visibility you know it, and and just like this area um is it, it belongs to many people the people who are protesting there who who we spoke to the other day they live there this is their community this is Nothing more than a very thinly veiled opportunistic excuse to be able to shut down what has been an effective and visible protest. And they're looking to do this more and more. They're looking to find excuses. Now, we know right now, based on uh, recent polling data, that the vast majority of people in Toronto are actually in support of the protests. That is not the narrative that they're trying to paint here. We That didn't happen overnight. It didn't start that way. Much, many less people were in support at this beginning. But it's a testament to how effective these protests, which have now been going on every single weekend and more since the past 100 days. 
there was something like what 300 protests in toronto or something there was a ridiculous number like that i think there's weekly ones every saturday or sunday on the weekend there and then you've got some outside of the israeli consulate and yeah i i can imagine that number is quite high especially if you include all of these local protests that are coming up which was part of the strategy of in enabling and empowering locals to start their own smaller organizations so that they could represent locally, increase visibility. And these folks are answering that call and doing a banner drop along. And people are saying they're targeting the neighborhood because it's Jewish when it's their own neighborhood. And talk about being targeted. I don't want to tell their whole story because they're going to come on here. But these folks were treated horribly, you know, not just by the police, but by folks driving by the things that were said. This was 100% greenlit by Olivia Chow and quite a few Toronto City councillors that made it clear these protests needed extra police scrutiny. Right. Her one of her first statements is, I understand there's a protest without a permit going on. Like you don't need a permit. And deciding arbitrarily who like who gave the police power to just decide and, and where are the boundaries? And is every kind of protest or is this just pro Palestinian protests? The permit comment is really annoying and it's not the first time recently that she has said that about the permit. Olivia Chow has been to her fair share of protests throughout the years. She knows better. She comes from that area, like from, you know, a history of 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 protests. It is so malicious for her to imply that. And I'm seeing this narrative repeated online by people. I don't know if who still needs to hear this, but no, you do not need a permit to protest. There's not certain places you can protest and certain places you cannot. Protest wherever the fuck you want. And in terms of blocking roads, <laughs> like, a protest is not meant to be as accommodating as possible to those in power and to the, to, you know, business as usual status quo. You know, if a protest blocks a road, good. If it inconveniences people, good. Because... We've seen the 300 protests around the city. A protest that is as accommodating as possible, it's not going to get noticed. It's not going to get the message across. And when people, I mean, right now, Israel's in the, uh, in the ICJ right now facing genocide charges. We don't need to explain to anybody what the hell is going on here. When children are dying at this level, when hospitals are being bombed, schools are being bombed, journalists are being killed, doctors are being killed. A little inconvenience seems pretty fucking minor. And they're not blocking the road. That's the other thing. They're actually not. The police are blocking the road so that they can arrest people. The police are blocking the road so they have an excuse to use, uh, what's it called, the Highway Act, so that they can criminalize this. They're not even blocking the road. But Again, like these, it's the same thing we were just talking about when we were talking about the the reaction of people to 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 the rebel news story, the Freeman convoy, to all these things. It's it doesn't matter. It is we cannot start drawing these lines. We cannot start trying to de-radicalize these things and to be accommodating. We're by doing so, we surrender the ability to be effective. The next example that I'm going to give shows that that's the response that they're getting in Ottawa to the bylaw tickets. And 
And although our next story actually will be another example against pro-Palestinian protests, I think it's prudent to say, though, that police don't give a fuck. We know why Olivia said what she said, and we know why Zionists are framing Palestinian movements the way that they are. But in the end, the police don't give a fuck. They don't care what your cause is. They're not out there because they're Zionists. I mean, they might be, but that's not the point. The point is they love the chance to stomp on your charter rights and expand their power and expand their budget. They don't care if you're from Rebel News or whether you're an independent indigenous reporter. They don't care if you're protesting vaccines or if you're fighting a genocide. They will get more money for doing what they do. They will look like the saviors of the day. They will flex their muscles and push boundaries unless we push back. Right. And that's thankfully, although expensive, That's what folks are doing in response to the $490 tickets. Like, I'm so broke. That would bust me. $490 tickets are being handed out to activists in Ottawa when they use voice amplification, noise amplification. The average Canadian, and this is a statistic from like four years ago, So it's got to be worse. The average Canadian cannot afford a $400 emergency. This affects the vast majority of people. Because sometimes it's not going to be violence. Maybe it's not going to be arrests. But they will find all sorts of deterrents to use through the security mechanisms that they have to stop us from taking to the streets, to confine even smaller the boundaries of what is acceptable to protest. The folks in Ottawa, what we're talking about is, you know, they're using a bullhorn. Has anybody ever been to a protest where there hasn't been a megaphone, a bullhorn, or a speaker system used to amplify, you know, your speakers, perhaps at the rally or the chants as you march along? I've I've never, I mean, for Christmas one year, I got one that can sit on your belt and clip around your caller. I mean, this is standard operating procedure for even the smallest of rallies. And now they're handing out $490 tickets. So folks from the Palestinian youth movement obviously ended up with some. I saw representatives of PSAC out there. That is a public sector union and other community members. So, you know, they issued nine of these tickets one week and three on another in late December. And the response from the Palestinian youth movement representative that was quoted there is like, we're going to keep doing this. We are going to fight them in court. So they've retained counsel to push this through the courts. They're going to raise money to to pay the fines, I suppose, in the meantime. And they're going to keep using sound amplification. And like I said, it's, it's almost unimaginable to try to do that without. I know the Occupy movement, we started the People's Might. I don't know if that was because the police had threatened or it just became a lack of resources overcome. But, you know, that you can't do it without a megaphone. I mean, it becomes an accessibility thing. And more to the point of what we were talking about is not backing down. Like a lot of the response to the Avenue Road 401 is like the moderate approach. Well, you know, just the benefit of the doubt. Some people feel unsafe, so just go somewhere else. 
And it's like, but fucking people can say that anywhere and everywhere. And at what point do you draw the line and you take a stand and say, absolutely not. The only recourse I can have can't be through the courts. Not everyone can get a lawyer and fight things through the courts. And even if you can, it's already served to deter other people. I think like a showing of force, I saw people suggest, you know, the response to the Avenue Road situation would actually be to move the weekly protests there. And I know some people might cringe at that, but you have to be the boss in this situation. You can't allow the police, you can't allow the city to push back any more than they already have. Our rights have already been curtailed so much. There's already the threat of police intervention all the time to start normalizing increasingly oppressive tactics by them is a huge mistake, a huge mistake. So, you know, whether it's bylaw officers or cops, the city's response I guess perhaps this was initiated in response to the the stupid fucking convoy that drove the neighbors crazy with all of the noise that they made. And so <laughs> it's a perfect example of us likely advocating for certain responses that are coming back to bite us in the end. Mm -hmm. But the city's response is trying to like, oh, well, we want to educate you on the rules of protests. So similar to the areas of exclusion, just just work within these very reasonable bounds. But that defeats the entire purpose of protests. Because let me tell you, whatever is defined for you is what is tolerable to them. And the whole point of a demonstration, of a disruption, is to come to a point that is intolerable and forces a negotiation, a capitulation, a victory. If you always work within the confines of what has been deemed already acceptable, you've already lost and wasted your energy, frankly. I just can't help but think of the French right now. Oh, you mean like the <laughs> their protests? Yeah. Can can you imagine telling the French, oh, you can't get, you can't use megaphones, you can't protest in this neighborhood, you know, like that they would. It's like when they told Celtic fans not to bring Palestinian flags to the next match. And I think, I don't know where they found so many flags, but it seems like every fan there had a flag in response. Yeah. It's, you have to outdo them. It, it can't. I'm so tired of finding a middle ground with fascists. We don't even have to look all the way to Celtics. I mean, here in, in the MLS. It's just Celtic. Yeah, Celtic. Sorry. There was a similar ban for uh, Portland Timber fans. They like to fly a lot of anti-fascist flags during their games. It led to the league outlawing political banners and then they doubled down on it and then they had to make an exception for them because they refused to back down on it right and now i still see anti-fascist flags every time tfc plays against portland timbers and i can't help but you know you're on the wrong side yeah cheer, cheer for them a little you need to bring the red patch boys around <laughs> no Por portland has always yeah i have a soft spot for for portland uh, fun fact, uh, apparently Portland and me share music taste, according to my Spotify wrapped for 2023, city most similar to my music taste. Anyways, shout out to Portland. <laughs> but, you know, that it, it's a good example, right? Like, it, it, there's been plenty of times when there's been an attempt, you know, like the French have tried to outlaw protests altogether. And the French, they double down, you know, <laughs> we see how strong their movements are 
right? Look at Lebanon. I mean, in Colombia, they had the, there were a, a couple, just a couple of years ago, the protests got massive and they tried to outlaw them and people got hurt, but people kept going. And then, you know, the first le leftist was elected. Now, I'm not going to talk too much about that, but, you know, like, it's very tame what's going on here. These are, these are real low key protests that... They they don't they we're not exactly pelting cops with rocks yet like the French you know there's no Molotov cocktails you know yet it's it it's pretty low key what's going on over here they cannot possibly have an issue with this and we we don't back down an inch like these are some of the most yeah sorry they're just way too chill but to be fair our our cops are snowflakes too right they they. They haven't experienced what you're talking about, but you bring up South America and don't worry, I won't make you go deep. But it does remind me that uh, Argentina, the wonderful new fascist leader over there, one of the tactics that we're starting to build the social movements for the police response to their protests. Mm -hmm. So if they need to call out the tanks... <laughs> And every cop in the city, then the leaders of the various organizations that put together that rally, you put your logo on the flyer, and I guess you're getting a bill in the mail that I imagine is a lot heftier than a $490 fine. We have an interview with Anna Lippman coming up where you hear her talk about taking risks, risking arrests and the balance of working within the confines available, but also pushing boundaries in order to get what you need done. But absolutely, the response is to push back and to obviously start defunding these police forces. Because as you remember at the top of the show, we weren't just talking about pro-Palestinian protests. Like I said, the cops don't, they don't care. They are flexing their muscles from coast to coast and in Toronto, we know the budget talks are coming up. We'll we'll tear that apart when, when it comes due. But we know the cops are likely to get more money, and then they're not even happy. They want even more money. And the whole point of doing this and flexing and pulling out all the stops is to excuse their budgets and justify more. Mm -hmm. They are the solution to everything now, right? Housing and disruption and yeah. traffic and always crime and drugs, right? So obviously all your 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 funds should go there. They're going to fix it all. Yeah, that's the relationship of police versus movements, right? No matter which movement you are, no matter what issue it is, the, the police are there as a tool of the state to repress those movements. It's, it, that's the history. That's, that's modern history right there, right? That's the second you are being effective at something, you can expect to have a run, run in with the police. You know, I've seen it through a variety of different issues. Desmond Cole has seen it a million times himself you know we mentioned him earlier i bring up desmond cole because he was he was just tweeting about there was a recent report that came out just a couple days ago on january 10th about how uh well the toronto police admits that they shot devin folan um back in february of 2023 without having needed to shoot him you know 
to quote directly what they said, when there was no risk of bodily harm or death to any officer or member of the public. And now they're going and asking for a budget increase that they're getting and they're angry that they're getting a budget increase and it's not as much as they wanted. I mean, that's it's the story over and over again of their progressive politicians making these stupid concessions that in the end don't win them anything. To concede to the Zionist lobby to a demonize Palestinian movement at the cost that it had or didn't didn't matter. And here with police throwing them a bone and increasing their budget, even though that's a betrayal, again, to the people that helped elect her and likely worked on her campaign, it's still not going to be enough to win her, you know, the law and order vote. And it wasn't even enough to keep the cops happy. So it's such a lose-lose situation when those budgets go up. Not only does it take away from the services people need and feed into an awful system, but it is going to prevent us from effectively mounting campaigns. Because although my advice and is often, you know, double down and push back, it's very likely that one, that could be met with violence. I mean, folks from Avenue Road were hospitalized after police pushed them and whatnot. They ended up uh, with injuries. But court, right, between challenging these tickets and fighting arrests and charter challenges, this is all a very expensive endeavor. And they know that. So that's frustrating. It seems like no matter which way we go, we're, we're going to end up in these courts. And surely we don't have an advantage there. I mean, that's not to say it's not an avenue. There are good people mounting some necessary challenges. But in the meantime, I think you become so powerful and so big and so defiant that, you know, they can't arrest us all mentality. But... Even as I say that, I remember the G20 mm -hmm. and hundreds, hundreds of people getting arrested and then building special facilities just to store these people in really inhumane conditions. And I think although they got backlash there, even from both sides, I mean, it was it was horrific. They uh, the public appetite is coming back. And I think it's our job to really curb that appetite for police responses to well, fucking to everything, but especially to protests and challenging politicians. You know, even Leah Gazan was out there tweeting like, this is unacceptable that we're outside of Melanie Jolie's house. Like, what did you think? No justice, no peace was just something for your T-shirt? Like, I'm, or, or it's just not applicable unless it might come to you? Are we acting like politicians don't show up at our doorstep when they want to be elected? You know, it's not like they keep their campaigning... Uh, away from our doorstep and i'm sorry but i'm not looking to worry about the comfort of, of somebody who's actively enabling genocide i i don't see how anybody can try and justify such a thing it's it's treating you know it's when when, when people assume these roles it doesn't have this blanket protection from accountability as much as they want to think that as much as they want to think that they can be live a comfortable life while screwing over the rest of the world no that's not how that works uh, having just come back from colombia i have like an, a, a newfound desire for boldness you could say because 
you know, you, you go to places of the world that are actively being screwed over by imperialism and colonialism and you see, you know, the active effects and the history of that. And then you also see how people there rise the fuck up en masse, are met with violence and they continue fighting back. And, and you hear about how social leaders are killed constantly. And I can't help but think how here in the lion's den, here at the center of all of this... While I'm not saying that we're not going to be met with violence, we have the ability to be a hell of a lot more disruptive. And we have a responsibility to the rest of the world, to the countries that we're screwing over, to the people who they can't do anything about it in their homes, in their home countries, because they'll be killed. And they are being killed. We have a responsibility to them to do everything in our power to end their suffering that we're causing, that's being caused in our name. I'm not okay with that. So if Melanie Joy wants to sleep comfortably at night, if these leaders want to be left alone, then how about you leave other people in other countries the fuck alone first? Don't go screwing over their lives and then w wonder why people are showing up at your doorstep. This is, and, and, and I mean this quite fucking literally. Like we need to understand the extent of the harm that these people are causing. They're bold about it too. Because they've been doing this for a very fucking long time. And they've gotten used to our Canadian culture of, you know, oh no, don't block the road. It'll inconvenience traffic. Politicians have also gotten really good at thwarting the public. You know, they have constituency days and hours, and quite often they're not even there. And if they do meet with you, they've got all these buffer people to half answer questions for them. And so there's really no fucking accessibility, sometimes from journalists either. You know, the scrums are, are limited. And at what point can we hold you accountable then? And it's just like every other avenue that we have where you cut off this and you cut off that and there's no real democracy. Well, guess what? It ends up in the streets. There's no other outlet. Whenever a politician is doing something that they know that they're getting backlash on, I can guarantee you that they're not answering 90% of journalists' calls. They'll answer the ones that they know are friendly or are going to give them softball things so that they can make a public statement. But they're not answering most of our calls at all. And I know because I, you know, we've tried, like, I have seasoned journalists with decades of experience who they're like, oh, yeah, they're not going to get they're not going to get back to us on this. Oh, there's no way we're going to reach them now. So so just to like really emphasize what Jess is saying here. What exactly is the avenue for holding them accountable? No, and it's not even just like literally they don't answer our calls, but in general, they're not answering our calls. If you're talking about the call for a ceasefire, that has not happened. An escalation is inevitable. If you do not listen to the people, they will speak louder. You have a kid, you know that, right? It ends up with screaming and making a scene. And this is what's necessary if you're not going to listen. And if, if Melanie Jolie is not going to call for a ceasefire or even decently respond to these calls, then I'm sorry. 
you're going to have to be held accountable in some way. And that's not just going to be some NDPMP standing up in question period and asking you a question. That doesn't fucking count. That may, They may think that's what they get paid for, but that doesn't fucking count. And the city of Ottawa isn't going to all of a sudden decide that megaphones aren't going to be used in protests. And Toronto police can't decide what neighborhoods are good and what neighborhoods are bad for protests for whom, when, and how long, what streets they can take, what businesses they'll protect. I mean, we have to call an end to that, an absolute end to that. That can't just happen through the courts. That has to happen with just absolute defiance. Yeah. Because that is our duty, you know, to defy unjust laws. I know I brought up a few times today, but, you know, it's fresh. It's all my memory for some reason. But, you know, like when people went to City Hall to protest the budget last year what happened they were arrested is that not the right place to go protest oh no not then either not at city hall either that's apparently not okay either were the politicians were all there in the room apparently that's not okay either so if they're gonna criminalize protesting where we're supposed to fucking protest as well what it is is they're telling us to Go pick an empty field in the middle of nowhere, stand there for a while, get it out of our systems, and go home and nothing changes. That's what they want from us. And we know history. We know our history. We know better than that. We know how we have achieved every positive change that we've ever won. It's been won in the streets. It's been won by being disruptive. And obviously, Blueprints of Disruption, this isn't new to our audience. You all know this like we talk about this constantly, but it's we have to remind we have to go out and remind people of this because it's been very effective at making us forget that. But like we've been saying, you know, like shout out to recent victories, you know, Algoma University. That was one in the victory for those students. That was one in the streets. York Southwestern Tenant Union, when they were being disruptive, occupying the office, they won that battle. They weren't supposed to be there. The cops came and told them they weren't supposed to be there. They stood up, showed face, stood their ground. They didn't get arrested. And they won that battle. We know how these battles are won. We know our history. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.